Chapter Two, Part One of the Life of Clara Barton, Volume Two by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part One The Franco Prussian War. While Miss Barton was at Bern, in the villa of a friend, the Franco Prussian War broke suddenly upon Europe. Nothing that happens in France or Germany fails to register influence at once on Switzerland. While she was there, she received a call from Louise, the Grand Duchess of Baden, who, having learned of the presence there of an American woman so distinguished in war relief, invited her to go to Strasbourg, which was in a state of siege, and prepare for the relief which already had become necessary and soon would be urgent. The baths were not so complete a tonic as this call to service. Yet it did not seem to her that she was strong enough to undertake this work. Only a little later she had another invitation from Dr. Louis Appia, who had been one of the movers in the Geneva Convention. This was her opportunity to witness the actual work of the organization of which she had heard. On the 15th of July, 1870, France declared war against Prussia. Within three days, a band of agents from the International Committee of Geneva, headed by Dr. Louis Appia, one of the prime movers of the convention, equipped for work and en route for the seat of war, stood at the door of my villa, inviting me to go with them and take such part as I had taken in our own war. I had not strength to trust for that, and declined with thanks, promising to follow in my own time and way, and I did follow within a week. No shot had been fired, no man had fallen. Yet, this organized, powerful commission was on its way, with its skilled agents, ready to receive, direct, and dispense the charities and accumulations which the generous sympathies of twenty-two nations, if applied to, might place at its disposal. These men had treaty power to go directly on to any field, and work unmolested in full cooperation with the military and commanders-in-chief their supplies held sacred and their efforts recognized and seconded in every direction by either belligerent army not a man could lie uncared for nor unfed i thought of the peninsula in mcclellan's campaign of pittsburgh landing cedar mountain and second bull run antietam old fredericksburg with its acres of snow-covered and gun-covered glacé and its fourth-day flag of truce of its dead and starving wounded frozen to the ground and our commission and their supplies in washington with no effective organization to get beyond of the petersburg mine with its four thousand dead and wounded and no flag of truce the wounded broiling in a july sun dying and rotting where they fell 
I remembered our prisons, crowded with starving men whom all the powers and pities of the world could not reach even with a bit of bread. I thought of the widow's weeds still fresh and dark through all the land, north and south, from the pine to the palm, the shadows on the hearths and hearts over all my country, sore broken hearts, ruined desolate homes. Was this a people to decline a humanity in war? Was this a country to reject a treaty for the help of wounded soldiers? Were these the women and men to stand aloof and consider? I believed, if these people knew that the last cloud of war had forever passed from their horizon, the tender, painful, deathless memories of what had been would bring them in with a force no power could resist. They needed only to know. Soon Clara Barton was on her way to the front. She went not to Strasbourg, but to Basel, where she witnessed with great satisfaction the efficiency of the Red Cross system. Basel is in Switzerland, just at the German border but their representatives of both belligerent nations had their headquarters for purposes of relief of suffering. The Red Cross, protected by international agreement, had its base of supplies in neutral territory, and the agents of both armies organized their relief forces without molestation from each other. Wherever a battle occurred, relief could be and was provided in many cases before the first drop of blood was shed. Miss Barton's admiration for the work of this society grew as she contrasted its efficiency with the unpreparedness and deadly delay which she had known all too well through the Civil War. As I journeyed on and saw the work of these Red Cross societies in the field, accomplishing in four months under their systematic organization what we failed to accomplish in four years without it. No mistakes, no needless suffering, no starving, no lack of care, no waste, no confusion, but order, plenty, cleanliness, and comfort wherever that little flag made its way a whole continent marshaled under the banner of the Red Cross. As I saw all this, and joined and worked in it, you will not wonder that I said to myself, if I live to return to my country, I will try to make my people understand the Red Cross and that treaty. But I did more than resolve. I promised other nations I would do it and other reasons pressed me to remember my promise. The Franco-Prussian War and the War of the Commune were both enormous in the extent of their operations and in the suffering of individuals. This great modern international impulse of charity went out everywhere to meet and alleviate its miseries. The small, poor countries gave of their poverty, and the rich nations poured out abundantly of their vast resources. 
the contributions of those under the red cross went quietly promptly through international responsible channels were thoughtfully and carefully distributed through well-known agents returns accurate to a franc were made and duly published to the credit of the contributing nations and the object aimed at was accomplished france germany and switzerland had been in the international compact for years past all organized every town and city with its red cross relief committee its well-filled workrooms like our relief societies in our war but all prepared in times of peace and plenty awaiting the emergency the swiss headquarters were at basel bordering on both france and germany and there all the supplies were to be sent and held on call from the hundreds of workers at the fields for the use of the sick and wounded of either side indiscriminately wherever the need was found greatest the belligerent nations had each its own headquarters that of germany at berlin with the empress augusta at its head that of france at paris under the auspices of its lovely empress but you will understand that the international feature of this requires that all contributions from other nations be sent through the international headquarters hence no people within the compact except the belligerents could send direct to either france or germany but must correspond with the central committee at geneva and learn from it the place of greatest need and the proper agents on the spot to whom the consignment should be made this wise provision both marked and sustained their neutrality up to this point no point beyond basil had been reached this was then the great central depot of the international red cross and it was worth something to have seen it as i saw it in less than two weeks after the sudden declaration a declaration as unexpected as if some nation should declare war against us to-morrow my first steps were to the storehouses and to my amazement i found there a larger supply than i had ever seen at any one time in readiness for the field at our own sanitary commission rooms in washington even in the fourth year of the war and the trains were loaded with boxes and barrels pouring in from every city town and hamlet in switzerland even from austria and northern italy and the trained educated nurses stood awaiting their appointments each with this badge upon the arm or breast and every box package or barrel with a broad bright scarlet cross which rendered it as safe and sacred from molestation one might almost say as the bread and wine before the altar you will conclude that quiet old historic basel was by this time a busy city it was frightened out of its senses bordering on both france and germany 
it lay directly on the possible march of either army on its way to the other and the moment switzerland shall allow this crossing her neutrality will be declared broken and not only basil but all switzerland will be held in a state of actual war and become common battleground for both i passed a week in that city among this work to learn it more thoroughly to be able to judge it in its practical bearings its merits and demerits so far as i could before giving my qualifications and endorsement you will not wonder that basil felt her responsibility and trembled for both her own safety and the safety of the state not very long did she remain in basil soon a dispatch was received from mulhausen and clara barton no longer an invalid set out again for the front she was not alone accompanying her was a young woman who thenceforth became her companion and who some years later followed her to america miss antoinette margot accompanied by this devoted girl she set forth as she had done nine years before for the relief of suffering on the battlefield she told the story of it in an address which she gave afterward which was little more than a transcript of her diary a mile from basil we met the pickets but passed without serious interruption for the first six miles when the detentions became longer and the road lined with fugitives fleeing to switzerland entire families carrying such articles as were possible the better classes in family and public carriages the next in farmer and peasant wagons drawn by horses oxen cows and often the animals of the family accompanying the wagon which contained the most useful articles for an emergency kettles beds and clothing those who could not afford this style of removal were wearily but hastily trudging along on foot carrying in their arms such as their strength would allow and the tired children plodding along on behind or drawn in little carts with bundles of clothing and bits of bread sometimes a family was fortunate to have a cow or a goat with them when they had no wagon sometimes after the bernays custom a large dog drew the wagon of luggage but in some manner all were making on often in tears and always with grief in their faces all day we saw but two carriages going in our direction but all whom we met looked at us in astonishment the prussians are coming or there has been a terrible battle and everybody is being killed turn back turn back sometimes one would be so earnest as to come to the heads of our horses to urge us to return and it was not always easy to keep our driver in heart at blank we were met and stopped by a large body of people the mayor at the head and our destination inquired 
and at the same time informed that it was exceedingly hazardous to proceed, as great battles were going on at a short distance from Mulhausen, and that the Prussians were crossing the Rhine in great force. But when to all this we replied that we were aware of the state of things, and that was the reason of our going, that we went to care for the wounded of the battles, they all cried out with one voice, Mon Dieu, God bless you. And the old white-haired mayor led the way to the side of our carriage to take our hands, exclaiming, God preserve and be with you, my children. And he is with you, or you would not be here on this mission. And the crowd that jostled in the street, one after another, followed his example, with the tears falling over their faces, even to the little children to whom we reached down our hands to reach theirs, or to touch them as they were held up to us. No wonder they wept. Their fathers, sons, and brothers would be in the bloody carnage so soon to follow. Already they had bade to God only knows how many the last farewell. At length, they let go our bridles, and we passed on. And, with such scenes every moment in some form occurring, we performed the remainder of our journey to Mulhausen. We made our way directly to the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross of Mulhausen, Monsieur August Dolphus. A dispatch had just been received from the International Committee of the Red Cross at Mulhausen, France, inviting me to come there. Dr. Appia and his noble band of pioneers had evidently passed that way. This would be in a direct line to Strasbourg and the field of Weisenberg, and I decided to leave by the earliest train next morning. As good fortune would have it, there came to me at this moment a kind-featured, gentle-toned, intelligent Swiss girl who had left the Cantor de Vol to go alone to care for the wounded. The society introduced her to me. Perhaps it would be well to anticipate so far as to speak of this young lady more fully for all through you will know her as my faithful Antoinette, Antoinette Margot, Swiss by birth, French by cultivation, education, and habit. The two national characteristics met and joined in her. The enthusiasm of the one, the fidelity of the other, were so perfectly blended and balanced in her that no one could never determine which prevailed no matter as both were unquenchable unconquerable she was raised in the city of lyon france an only daughter and at the age an artist of great note even in the schools of artistic france fair-haired playful bright and confiding she spoke english as learned from books and selected her forms of expression by inference one day she made the remark that something was unpretty. Observing a smile on my face, she asked if that were not correct. I replied that we do not say unpretty in English. 
no but you say unwise unselfish unkind and ungrateful why not unpretty i do not know i answered i didn't either there was something in that face to be drawn to at sight and to her astonishment and delight i told her she might accompany me scarce was this arrangement completed when breathless messengers rushed to tell us that the french still fled before the troops of the prince royal that the prussians were marching direct upon the rhine if indeed it were not already crossed and that the french had destroyed their railroad to strasbourg that the rolling stock of the road had been run off to save it and that even the station was closed this was after dark the news was not of a nature to favor delay instead of five o'clock by train next morning i would start at daybreak by private carriage at length a cocher was found who would undertake the journey the task of driving to mulhausen for a consideration which under the circumstances it was quite possible for him to obtain at the appointed hour with some small satchels the requisite supply of shawls and waterproofs with my quiet sensible young companion i set off once more shall i say for the front that expression was very strange after a lapse of five years and i had thought never to hear it again in connection with myself arriving at mulhausen miss barton found there was no present need of her services she determined to set forth for strasburg with great difficulty she made her way thither through rain and mud with conveyance almost impossible to obtain she finally arrived a distance of seventy-two miles which journey she completed in a single day she was received with honor at strasburg the united states consul and vice-consul were both germans but both had fought in the civil war on the side of the union and they both knew of clara barton the consul had been a surgeon and the vice-consul a chaplain both welcomed her to the consulate and to their homes but strasburg was about to undergo bombardment the city was then under french rule but its population was mixed it contained besides its own proper inhabitants many german americans just then eager to get out of alsace the consul got an omnibus full of them with clara barton in the van and set out to place them inside the german lines he took them as far as he was allowed to go and turned back on horseback Clara Barton and her omnibus full of people moved on. They carried the American flag. Part of the way it served to enable them to pass the sentries, but when they reached the German outposts it ceased to afford them safe passage. We had the United States flag at our front, and the first sentry halted us to learn what it was. When informed, he promptly disputed it. 
He had been in Mexico and Guatemala and Australia and the Sandwich Islands, and it was not the American flag at all. Reference to a chart of flags convinced him, and we passed. But this made us aware of a great mistake we had committed. In our hurry of getting off in the rain and darkness of the early morning, we had forgotten our international Red Cross flag and all our insignia. There was no return, as well seek to go back through the gates of death. We must trust to luck. At the demand for the Red Cross insignia by the keen, acute sentry, Miss Barton retired, seized the bow of red ribbon, without which color she was seldom seen, and twisted it into a red cross, which, with the thread and needle taken from her pocket, she sewed upon her arm. The next sentinel, about a league from Strasbourg, recognized our flag, saluted it, and did not even halt us. These were the conditions under which, for the first time, Clara Barton wore the insignia which, in America, was destined to be forever associated with her name. The outer German sentinels were now safely passed, but before she was permitted to enter the lines of the German army, she was informed that if she entered, she must remain. She might return if she wished within the French lines, or she might make her way again into Switzerland, but if she entered the German lines, she must be willing to remain there until the termination of the war. She had no desire to go back to Strasbourg and submit to the bombardment. She did not now desire to return to neutral territory. She entered the German lines and made her way to Karlsruhe, where she was a guest in the home of the Duke of Baden. She and the Grand Duchess Louise became devoted friends. The last letter Clara Barton wrote before her death, and with the knowledge that she had but a few hours to live, was written to the Grand Duchess Louise among the tributes that lay upon the grave of Clara Barton when the earth closed over her was a beautiful laurel wreath from the Grand Duchess Louise. It was an accident that put Clara Barton inside the German lines. She had planned it otherwise when she went to Strasbourg. She had rather expected that her work would be to the wounded French, but the fortunes of war put her within the opposing lines and to her it mattered little her interests were not those of a belligerent she was ready to minister to the suffering of either army again clara barton was on the battlefield from Karlsruhe, she visited in succession several of the bloody fields but when Strasbourg fell, as it did September 28, 1870, she turned her back upon the comforts of the Grand Ducal Palace and entered the city where a few weeks before she had been the honored guest of the United States Consul. Thousands of its inhabitants were homeless and in danger of starvation. She organized a workroom, 
where she set two hundred and fifty poor women to work. For forty days she and Antoinette Margot did their work amid the ruins of this distressed city. At first there was nothing to do but to give relief on application. There lie before the writer some of the original meal tickets which were issued at this time. But before long she saw that this plan, if continued, would pauperize the women. She devised the plan by which they were to work and be paid for it whenever they were able to work. She wrote a letter to Count Bismarck, being introduced to him by the Grand Duchess Louise, and which obtained official recognition for her type of work. Count Bismarck, Governor-General of Alsace, Honored Count. Through the politeness of your adjutant and his amiable lady, I learn that your highness will kindly permit me to communicate with you in reference to the work I am endeavoring to perform among the destitute people who are so fortunate as to fall under your protecting care. But speaking no German, lacking confidence to attempt a conversation in French, and fearing that English may not be familiar to you, I decide to write, subject to translation, the little explanation I would make of my work, its origin, progress, and design. I entered Strasbourg the second day after its fall, and observing both the distress of its inhabitants and their bitterness toward their captors, who must always remain their neighbors, I deemed it wise, while they should receive the charity so much needed, that something of it be presented by German hands. In this view I was most cordially met by that noblest of ladies, the Grand Duchess of Baden, to whom I am also indebted for this introduction to you, and immediately, under her generous patronage, I returned with an assistant to do what we could in the name of Germany. At first, we could only give indiscriminately to the hundreds who thronged our doors. But directly, I perceived that a prolonged continuance of this system would be productive of greater disaster to the moral condition of the people than the bombardment had been to their physical, that in a city comprising less than 80,000 inhabitants, there would shortly be 20,000 confirmed beggars." only a small proportion of these families had been accustomed to receive charity but one winter of common beggary would reduce the larger part to a state of careless degradation from which they would scarcely again emerge it seemed morally indispensable that remunerative employment in some form should be given them Again I consulted Her Royal Highness, who kindly approved, generously making the first contribution of materials, and we opened our present workrooms for women in the month of October. To say that the results have surpassed my most sanguine expectation is little. The facts are much more. 
but a stranger both to people and language it is not singular that my work which depends entirely upon public patronage has often lacked the necessary means to attain the full measure of success my original design was to aid not only the inhabitants of strasburg but those in other portions of alsace who are equally destitute i thought that to be just to all and produce the best moral influence the employment and the payment should be given to strasburg thus making of the inhabitants workers instead of beggars but that the warm garments made by them should be sent to the half-naked peasants of the villages and little country homes where the harvest has been lost and neither money nor clothing comes within reach and to the extent of my means i have done this the peasants have heard of the rooms and often walk two and three leagues to ask for garments and the clergymen from around the old battlefields and from bitch are making appeals in behalf of their half-naked and shivering people both my sympathy and my judgment would favor the hearing of these appeals so far as possible this population must always be the neighbors if not a part of the german people it will be most desirable that they should be also friends they are in distress their hearts can never be better reached than now the little seed sown to-day may have in it the germs of future peace or war but pardon my boldness honored count i am neither a diplomatist nor political counsellor i am only a maker of garments for the poor i have objected to the purchasing of materials for my work from magazines believing that if the attention of some large manufacturers of stuffs were called to the subject materials could be supplied in a much better manner other noble societies i rejoice to say have sprung up later all of which i believe will confine their praiseworthy efforts to the city of strasburg and in every respect but that of affording employment will i trust prove sufficient for the necessities my little work has been the pioneer that ploughed through the earliest and deepest drifts and which though often weary and disheartened still seeks to push beyond the beaten track over the fields and along the hillsides and gather the sufferers out of the storm after this i fear too lengthy explanation will your highness kindly permit me for the sake of perspicuity to arrange under two or three distinct heads the prominent features of my work first i desire to give employment and payment theretofore at the usual rates to some portion of the destitute families of strasburg second to distribute the garments made by them among the people of the surrounding districts which have been reduced by the calamities of the war third that 
beyond this i design to make no appropriations of charities but to refer all such applicants residing within the city to the various societies and committees of the same fourth to attain this object and carry on the work is required material in warm stuffs of both wool and cotton suitable for clothing for working men women and children fifth money to pay the workers sufficient for the numbers employed strasburg december ninth eighteen seventy miss barton also sent an appeal to america for assistance in the purchase of material her letter to the new york tribune brought her prompt response and she was not without means for the support of her work. She used the money which was sent to her in such fashion as to make it do double duty. She bought material and had it made into garments largely by the women who needed those garments for themselves or their families. She paid them for their work in vouchers, two francs a day, which was good pay, and she sold them the products of their work at low prices. They received good wages for their labor and good value for their wages, but wherever they were able, they had to work for the vouchers they got and pay for the clothing they obtained. I have some of the odd little two-franc vouchers which she required the women to give. She was not held to any system of accounting, and when there was need she spent money without vouchers but wherever it was feasible she did her business in a businesslike way and she taught the women to be businesslike in her final accounting only a surprisingly small fraction of her money had been expended without vouchers on christmas day of eighteen seventy her forty-ninth birthday, she wrote to Mrs. Frances Childs Vassal a letter in which she gave an account of her own work and also passed a distinctly unfavorable judgment upon the French as they appeared to her at that time. Woman's Workroom, Strasbourg, Alsace, December twenty-fifth, 1870. My dear Fanny, with your usual sagacity you timed your letter just to the moment it was christmas eve five o'clock cold as greenland i had sent my assistants home the day before to enjoy a few days of leisure with their friends i sat writing at the farthest end of my large room from which only a range of white curtains separated and enclosed me in my little counting-room the postman's rap at the door caused me to look up and through the curtains i could discern a singular glimmer of lights like stars but moving from point to point as if the firmament were not satisfied with the arrangement of its luminaries and sought the opportunity to rearrange startled at first i rose from my seat to rush out but suddenly remembering the evening and the occasion it occurred to me that my presence at that especial instant might not be desirable and i receded 
after a minute more of shifting and fluttering my little domestic emily appeared between the curtains here are two letters and will you please to walk out the letters were from you and fanny atwater and the walking out revealed a christmas tree in full blaze all for myself it had been arranged and left by my good ladies before they had departed with instructions to the domestics to produce and light it at five o'clock in the evening it abounded in fruit and flowers and mosses and some little nice things which their good hearts had dictated for my comfort and so in the delicate shadows falling like tracery upon the snow which spread beneath its branches i sat me down and read your dear welcome letter although you did not intend a word of sentiment in it nor a touching sentence i could not truly say that my hand did not sometimes brush across my eyes as i read it was so like old times to receive a whole letter from you all from you and all for me i knew i did not deserve it i have been so remiss in writing and i don't know how it happens i can only account for it on your own grounds that when we are occupied and feel that there is something to say there is no time to say it and when unoccupied we become listless and there seems to be nothing to say i am always disgusted at this state of things in the human economy but i can neither reconstruct nor mend it it is a little more than a week since i posted a long letter to sally all about myself selfish as could be and i must not inflict a similar chapter on you as you will be compelled to go over that when it arrives i am rejoiced to hear from yourself that you are better than when i left my greatest obstacle i meet in the way of a full restoration of strength is the utter inability to get sleep enough an average of five hours is the maximum if i by chance succeed in getting a half hour beyond this one night i have it docked off the next when i was stronger this would do me i could run my machine at full speed all day upon this power and did it for years but now the belts are slack and the wheels slip and i lose so much power that my pond is all drawn off i should be so glad if i could adopt your plan of a nap in the afternoon but i cannot get it unless by mere accident once in a great while but i too am so much better than when we last saw each other that i feel i should never mention the subject of health and strength again while they are as good as at present i thank you for mentioning to me mrs livermore's lectures i know she was a favorite in worcester you know she was always a favorite with me although i never met her madame de gasparin's appeal for peace has found a warm and strong advocate in mrs howe i hope some good may come of it all that you say upon the subject is true 
and it is no small amount of picking up that women have to do in consequence of these reckless fellows. From boyhood to manhood and from manhood to age, it is all the same. I can never see a poor mutilated wreck blown to pieces with powder and lead without wondering if visions such an end ever flitted before his mother's mind when she washed and dressed her fair-skinned baby woman should certainly have some voice in the matter of war either affirmative or negative and the fact that she has not this should not be made the ground on which to deprive her of other privileges she shan't say there will be no war and she shan't take any part in it when there is one and because she doesn't take part in war she mustn't vote and because she can't vote she has no voice in her government and because she has no voice in her government she isn't a citizen and because she isn't a citizen she has no rights and because she has no rights she must submit to wrongs and because she submits to wrongs, she isn't anybody. What does she know about war? Because she doesn't know anything about it, she mustn't say or do anything about it. Three blind mice. Cut off their heads with a carving knife. Three blind mice. I pray for peace, and all that may promote it, and if there be a power on earth which can right the wrongs for which nations go to war i pray that it may be made manifest but when i think i fear how supreme an international court must it have been to be able to induce the southerners to liberate their slaves or to convince them that the mudsills and greasy mechanics and horned Yankees were a people entitled to sufficient respect to be treated on fair international ground. And how much legislation would it have taken to convince the world what a worthless bubble of assumption was France, so utterly unworthy the leadership she assumed? and to have laid her in all respects so open before the world that it should with one voice repudiate her leadership and refuse to follow her as heretofore in frivolity immorality folly fashion vice and crime she seems to me to have been only one great balloon and now that the bayonets and bombs have pierced it full of holes, it sends out tens of thousands of little balloons in its collapse. It is bad for France, but I am not certain but the lesson would be beneficial to the rest of the world. I don't know if we may always trust councils. We had one at Rome not half a year ago that voted a dogma which turned backward the progress of enlightened thought two centuries, and how great a power of legislation would have been required to overthrow that decision. But I suspect the fear of Victor Emmanuel's bayonets have seriously interfered with it. Oh, I don't know. It is such a mystery and mankind the greatest mystery of all i shall never get it right in this world whatever may happen in the one that sets this right 
but how prosy i am and it all comes of that five hour sleep you know beecher says if the preacher doesn't sleep his hearers will i hope you reserve the reading of this till you were ready for your nap End of chapter two part one